is Fair and Square, a podcast from Hudson Sandler. Hello and welcome to the Fair and Square podcast from Hudson Sandler. I'm Adam Batstone and today we're going to talk about gambling. It's a big part of British culture and the gaming sector contributes huge sums in tax revenues. But it feels like barely a day passes without more bad news for this industry. We've seen controls on fixed-odd betting terminals, limits to credit card bets, and pressure to restrict live sport video streaming on gambling websites. Hassan Sandler's own research shows a 300% increase in negative print media coverage over the past two years. So how should the industry respond? With me to consider that are some well-placed experts on the subject. David Zeffman is a partner and head of gaming for the law firm CMS. Alice Hancock is the leisure industry correspondent for the FT, a job which is surely harder than its name may suggest. Alex Brennan's partner with Hudson Sandler. He's advised many leading online gaming operators over the last 10 years. And Bruce Garrow from Investec has been advising gaming companies on investments for a similar period. So welcome, everyone. And David, if I can start with you... Neil MacArthur, who's head of the Gambling Commission, said, In 2017, we introduced a tougher enforcement regime to make significant changes to operators' behaviour. There were too many failures, and frankly, standards were not good enough. Was he right to say that, do you think? And how do you think the industry has responded? Okay, well, he he actually, and I should plug this, said that at the CMS annual gambling conference. Um, And I need to go back slightly further because the current relatively liberal regulatory regime was introduced by the 2005 Gambling Act in 2007, but actually it didn't apply to any of the online operators until November 2014. So although we talk about operators not having come up to standard, it's actually been a relatively recent application of the, of the new regulatory regime. And They were used to a a more benign regime, primarily in Gibraltar, but also Malta. And I think the Gambling Commission gave them a little while to try and get up to the right standard. But when Sarah Harrison became the Gambling Commission Chief Executive October 2015, she really did crank up the enforcement um, procedures and there were a series of increasing multi-million pound fines. Neil MacArthur took over from her... April 2018, and continued in the same vein, Um, although recently he's adopted a more collaborative approach with the operators, um, for which, of course, he's been criticised by the anti-gambling campaigners and the anti-gambling MPs. So, Bruce, bearing in mind what David's saying there about this increase of regulatory controls on the sector... What have you seen in your work in terms of the investment story around the gaming sector? Is this something that people are less willing to take a punt on? I think I think it's less about less about risk and more about how these how these businesses are sometimes perceived. I think the bigger are getting bigger uh, and winning and applying more regulation to their businesses. Their technology is getting more um, robust. 
and are generating returns that some of the smaller operators can't can't generate when regulation is essentially a cost. But risk, these businesses are still, the bigger businesses are still growing at 10% a year in terms of earnings, at least. And so, you know, from a stock market perspective, in a relatively benign growth environment from a GDP perspective, it's still it's still considered a, uh, a sound investment for some, but it's not clearly for all funds, ESG being a big topic. So, Alice, obviously, the, the FT has kind of an interesting perspective on this, because at one level, you're telling the kind of investment story, which Bruce just referring to, but also there's this sort of media perception thing, which that Hudson Sandler uh, figures about negative coverage plays in. What do you see from your perspective about where the industry sits? I mean, has it just become a kind of whipping boy in the way that tobacco was maybe and still is to a certain extent? It's interesting. I think the industry didn't help itself over the fixed odds betting terminal state cut. And the that's... so-called crack cocaine of gambling. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was a clever marketing campaign in some ways by the anti-gambling campaign. It's for good reason. You know, they are they are very addictive machines. But the negative press coverage around that sort of that was the trigger, I think, for journalists going out, finding problem gambling cases, looking at how gambling companies were treating um, addicted gamblers, VIP schemes. And then from there, it just snowballs and snowballs because you've got a great human interest story, but you've also got a business uh, case there as well with the increasing regulation. Do you find that you spend more time writing about the business, the investment case, the sort of thing that Bruce was referring to, or more around the sort of reputational type issues? I spend more time on the business case, um, particularly as the FT is interested in the US market opening up. Um, but in fact, today I've just filed a read on the UK gambling market, the investment case, whether you know deals are being put off uh, as a result of the regulatory environment. What's your perspective on that, Bruce? Well, I think I think there's a few things. One, the regulatory environment actually uh, is is a, is a helpful deals in a sense because they're better quality earnings. So if you have a regulatory environment and and companies are making profits and they're growing their profits in a regulated environment, then regulated businesses can can marry together. Um, Flutter Stars Group would be a good example of that, where they are seen as some of the industry leaders. I think the, the problem comes with the smaller players if some of the revenues are greyer. Those types of deals um, are less prominent now, should we say, than they were. We saw the unbundling of G- the GBC Labrooks, the Turkish operations. You know, there's, there's some quite high profile black markets that the, the stock market definitely doesn't want to go anywhere near. Those types of deals don't see the light of day in the public markets and don't necessarily hit the, the general press. But I suspect there are still offshore gaming operators out there, still operating in in dark markets that the Joe public doesn't see on a regular basis in terms of the brands or the the operators that you would know as a high street name. So, Alex, just from your perspective, again dealing with issues around reputation, corporate reputation, that point Bruce just referred to there about these sort of slightly kind of lesser well known brands. To what degree do you think the problem reputationally is this sort of fragmented sector where there's no one corporate voice speaking for gaming and that puts them on the back foot from a reputational point of view? I think it's been a huge problem for the industry over the last, uh, after the last four to five years, really. If you go back to the FOBD debate, the fixed odds betting terminals, which affected uh, those operators with shops on the high street, um, the online operators were tend to be kept out of that debate, and and at the same time, the casino operators were, were the, the sort of land-based casino operators um, weren't impacted by that debate. Those three groups of operators in the UK have not shared a consistent voice on issues for a long time. Um, as a result, I think they found themselves in a very weak position now that the industry is under increased scrutiny. 
David, we, we're talking a little bit there about scrutiny and regulation. Where do you see the kind of future in, in this country, in the UK? Do you, do you think that companies will still be looking to the UK as a good place to do business? Or do you think that sort of the spectre of increased regulation is going to put people off? Well, I think it, it has put some of the smaller companies off. And I think one of the reasons for the increasing amount of consolidation has been because the cost of being a regulated company has um, increased inexorably with each year that's passed. And I think the other issue, I mean, Bruce talked about um, regulated versus non-regulated turnover. And and there are, you know, not to coin a phrase, but various shades of grey. I mean, you mentioned Turkey. Turkey is at the black end. But actually, GVC built itself up by um, making money from various grey markets. And a few years ago, there was a push for every listed operator to present themselves as only taking money from regulated or regulating markets. But my perception that there's been a slight sort of swing back, if anything. You may disagree. Uh, it's certainly, I would say that they are still trying to promote the fact that they are in regulated or regulating markets in general. I'm interested to think that the, that there's more prominence in the, the unregulated sector. I think with the unknowns around Germany, with the unknowns or the challenges in Australia, the, obviously the challenges in the UK or the costs in the UK and interrogation, and also with the US opening up, um, there's lots of moving parts within the industry and equally in South America, lots of regulating markets which were previously unregulated. There's still so much going on, not just in the UK, but I think globally. Uh, and these businesses, as they get bigger, are more and more and more international. Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of regulatory pendulum throughout Europe really has been moving to more and more restrictive regulation. You know, in the UK, there's a lot of pressure on advertising. In Italy, um, in theory, there is no advertising allowed. And that's the trend, the direction of travel throughout most of Europe. Um, you mentioned sort of Latin America. I mean, sort of Latin America, Africa are the new sort of emerging markets. And what attracts operators about those markets, I'm sure, is that there's less regulation and it's easier to make, make money there. One of the things I think is interesting, um, you mentioned the US, Alice, and there, of course, after almost 100 years, sports betting has suddenly become lawful again. And there's the, you know, the great gold rush. And, and again, um, whereas over here and in most of Europe, there's increasing focus on sort of what's seen as an unhealthily close relationship between sport and betting. But in the States, all you hear is it's great. It, you know, betting gives the, the sports fan greater engagement, enhances his experience. And I think that's fine as it is now, but probably within a few years, you're going to get the same clamping down on regulation that we've, we're experiencing in Europe. We shouldn't overlook the fact that Betting is still hugely popular in the UK, Alex. I know you have some figures about the number of people who regularly gamble and uh, you know the difference between those people who gamble as a sort of leisure thing as a, for, for fun and those who, the smaller minority who might be considered as problem gamblers. 
it is a big pastime in the UK. I think there's 24 million adults gamble according to the UK Gambling Commission. That's about 50% of adults. Uh, place a bet. Things like the National Lottery, the pools, betting at football on Saturday are Grand National, Grand national uh, are part of national pastimes in a way. I think that also highlights both a, a challenge and an opportunity for UK operators. We um, operators in the UK operate in the uh, most sophisticated, most competitive market in the world. That means that we are probably ahead of the curve in some of the challenges being faced, as David talked about there. You know, it's yet to reach some of the markets like the US. Uh, it means that the operators listed in the UK that Bruce was talking about have tend to have the better technology. That means they can go to some of these higher growth markets as well. So because of the scale of the UK market, the operators here have tremendous opportunities overseas as well. Alice, what do you think about that point um, around the kind of advertising sponsorship? Obviously, that's been a big thing recently, sport in the UK, the percentage of Premier League football teams, for example, who are you know, sponsored by gambling companies. Do you think that there will be more restrictions on that kind of thing? Do you see advertising going the same way as tobacco did before? It's interesting. I've heard that tobacco gambling uh, sort of metaphor used quite a few times this week. Um, And actually, because Bridget Simmons, the new betting and gaming council chief, came from the pubs association, um, there's been some talk of whether gambling will go the way of alcohol or will it go the way of tobacco. And um, somebody made a good point to me, which was, you know, the way that gambling is advertised at the moment, um, alcohol has restrictions of, you know, you can't advertise people having a good time drinking. But the gambling adverts don't really, you know, the ones you see on TV don't have that same. Those Ray Winston. Well, exactly, exactly. Um, and the other thing to say is that, you know, a lot of these small operators came into the UK market, got a UK licence in order to get premiership sponsorship um, in order to advertise to the Asian market because so many Chinese watch Premier League football. They don't really have an interest in the UK market. So the anymore. UK was almost entirely incidental. It was purely a conduit to reach that Asian audience. Yeah. In some part, yeah. I mean, the point is that, and, and Alice is right, a lot of the sponsors you see of um, football teams are Asian brands, but in order for them to be able to lawfully sponsor slash advertise, they have to have a UK Gambling Commission licence, although actually they're not looking to take bets from UK punters at all, really. Bruce, in this context where we're talking about the potential for uh, stricter regulation, potential limits on advertising... Do you think that that scares off the investment community? I mean, you, you you mentioned earlier that the returns are still healthy. Yeah, I mean, I think the returns for some of the better the companies are potentially healthy. Um, if depending on how regulation evolves, we haven't finished. But I think from a from an investor perspective, if you look at the uh, opportunities out there, the the problem comes when overregulation drives drives revenue offshore. And some of the, therefore, the bigger companies start losing money or, or not growing as quickly, and maybe an offshore brand becomes more prominent, and therefore the state can't control because they can't control those offshore companies. And of course, the other important point is the revenue to HMRC from UK-based gaming companies. Well, there's always there's always that argument. I haven't got the stats to hand to know how much the, the, the it's treasury. It's going to be several million pounds. Three I, I billion don't know to the exchequer. So it's it's still a it's still a reasonable revenue for them. But there's always a balancing act, like there is with tobacco or um, alcohol. Yeah. Duty. And and Alex, in terms of the sector being able to kind of tell its story and give those more positive messages, whether it's about tax revenue, responsible betting, etc. 
Do you think there's a problem there that there's there's not really a kind of single voice? There's not really someone who can get up and sort of bang the drum for gaming? I think that is an issue. I think the the industry took more proactive actions in terms of promoting responsible gambling through advertising, the Senate group, um, a lot of advertising spend in terms of promoting responsible gambling. Whether that was always backed up by action uh, and whether that was consistently applied across the industry uh, is a separate question. Uh, the, the industry has got a lot to do to rebuild trust before it can be proactive. I think it's lost a lot of trust uh, in the public's eyes. Um, and there are probably things that they could do in terms of being more proactive. If you take credit cards, for example, that's been an issue on the agenda. Limiting for the some, spend on lim- credit, yeah. Banning credit cards yeah. online, that's been an issue on the agenda for some time. No operator proactively, as far as I'm aware, um, took the stance of blocking credit cards ahead of regulation. So I think there are some things that the industry might consider doing, being ahead of the curve, that may help them build up some trust to start being more proactive and telling a more positive story about what they're doing. I think you've seen a good example with the big operators coming together and having the levy that they apply for the health concerns around gambling, the, the GVCs and Bet365. Flutter, etc., came together and, um, and formed that body. That was the first initiative we saw around that, and I think that's part of what Alex is referring to, and I think you'll see others, other initiatives like that to help present the industry in a better light. And just on that point about sort of, you know, trying to go on the front foot to, to generate better attitudes towards the sector, David, obviously we've got a new government now. What is your impression I don't know whether people have said anything already or what what, what do you think the the direction of wind is blowing uh, with regard to the sort of political context here? Well, all the parties before the um, general election had in their manifestos a review of the Gambling Act. And and I think Tom Watson came out initially with the soundbite that everyone seems to have adopted, which is, you know, the current legislation isn't fit for a digital age. And I think it is a soundbite and no more because actually when the 2005 Act came in, um, it was deliberately designed to be sort of technology neutral and to allow for um, DCMS and Gambling Commission to pass regulations if technology changed in a way that, that required it. I mean, Theresa May was a, was a natural regulator at heart, happy to set price caps for government, interfere in business and so on. So there are some grounds, perhaps, for thinking that, that Boris Johnson might take a different approach. You know, you could say that at the, at the heart of the Brexit project was the desire to be free from Brussels regulation. But equally, he's got no known affinity with the gambling industry. And there are definitely um, strong critics of the industry in Parliament, including on the government benches. Do you think the government trusts the Gambling Commission to, to be an effective watchdog and regulator? Look, I don't know about the the government's position, but, you know, there has been speculation that sort of control of gambling as a sector would move from DCMS to Department of Health. It's hard to say. I mean, you know, gambling has become such a a punch bag for for everybody. And, you know, although it's a cliche, the the industry has lost control of the narrative. And to regain that is not going to be easy. Bruce, yeah, but picking up on something you said earlier about the uh, essentially was a gold rush uh, to, for the gaming sector in in North America and the USA. What what do you think about the political environment in the USA, which may potentially be attractive for some of the uh, 
the companies who 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 have been operating in the UK? Well, I think I think so. The the US question has been revolving for many many years, and they finally come up with legitimizing uh, certain aspects of of gambling in the US. But it's on a state by state basis. It's highly complex. It's highly costly. It is protectionist in some of the states, vis a vis tribes or local operators. The partnerships you've seen. Um, the land grab you've seen, and the investment not just by gambling companies, but also by media companies, Fox partnering with Stars. You know, I think you'll see more of that and that more convergence with media companies in the main. But politically, you have to assume that Trump is pro-capitalism. But it's a, as I say, it's a state-by-state basis. So knowing each legislature on a state basis uh, is going to be the key to un- and California being the, the biggest question mark that remains out- outstanding. Where's California stand on gaming at the moment? Well, it's not. It's not not approved, right. and so that's the big unknown okay. for many. Alice, I understand you've you've done some work on gaming in North America recently. What what has been your impression from what you've seen? Um, I went out there for a two three week trip to go and have a look around some of these enormous sports books. And when you compare them to the UK betting shops, I mean, it's like a sort of IMAX cinema compared Are we to talking a, about Las Vegas and Atlantic City, Vegas, Atlantic yeah. City, yeah. yeah, all those. I think a couple of interesting things came out. Um, I was in Washington for a period of it and um, talking about a federal bill for sports betting, um, which is backed by Mitt Romney. But they were saying that actually because Sheldon Adelson is such a big Republican donor, the the Las Vegas casino money going into that. They're, they're quite protectionist of the casino money and they don't really want to split out all these online operators. So there's a there's a sort of tension between the spread of online gambling in the US and land-based and much of the um, sports betting activity has to be tied to a, a land-based operator in state. So if you're an online operator, you'd have to... Um, do a partnership with a with a casino. The customers might have to go into the casino to register first time, and then they can bet outside. And the other thing, which Bruce mentioned, of course, is the tribal aspect. Um, they're big casino owners. That's partially what's holding up uh, legislation in California and Florida, some of the bigger states. Um, so I think it's very much a sort of slightly wait and see game. But given the sort of revenues that New Jersey, which is the first really big state to legalize, has brought in, it could be, as you say, a, a gold rush. Yeah, and the other. Th- other distinction to make is between betting and gaming, by which I mean sort of casino games. Because whilst um, you mean the blackjack, poker, etc., or yes. all the all the machines. No, I mean I mean the games. Right. So whereas as a result of a Supreme Court decision a couple of years ago, states are now free to regulate, and a number of them are regulating sports betting. There is still only a tiny number of states where you can. Um, play games, casino games online. Looking at it from a kind of investment perspective, obviously we see a move increasingly towards ethical investment, people being nervous about what might be considered you know, vice industries. How much do you see that as being a factor? Is that going to be something which is even more prevalent that uh, funds will not want to put money into? I think it's inevitable with the lead that BlackRock have taken um, globally on on their ethics, the ESG investing. um, uh, Most recently, they came out today with a a shot at Siemens in a different industry, but it's the first public shot that they really had on the ESG side. And I think we'll see more of this, not just in in gambling, but across different sectors from fund managers criticising boards for behavior. Obviously, gambling has the potential to trip up uh, in that regard because of the nature of the industry. And and it is targeted and any slip up gets magnified. I was was speaking to an investor the other day who actually counterintuitively to me pointed out that more regulation, this sort of 
crackdown. We've talked about it favouring the big operators, but actually makes them more investable because it makes them more certain. Um, and actually shares are up in the major sort of UK publicly listed companies in the last year. So most definitely. I mean, if you, if you go back to... At David's point, 2014, when these things started to bite and when the fines started to come through, the stock market found it quite uninvestable. Share prices fell, the ratings fell, but they have recovered. But they're almost linearly, um, the largest has the highest rating. And as, as you track down, the smallest has the lowest rating. So size size is going to be more and more a component to, to investor confidence. But reg- regulation from an investment's perspective is a good thing. I think if we just go back to the ESG point as well, and Bruce, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but relatively few funds actually exclude gambling as they are increasingly across all sectors are looking at gambling companies through a lens of ESG criteria. Uh, And what that means that gambling companies have got to do is be more transparent, is disclose more. You You cannot just talk about trying to protect players. You have to give a strategy of how you're going to do that. You have to provide some data. And that's something that I think gambling companies are increasingly open to they have to win the argument with facts and disclosure and some transparency. Uh, And I think that's what you're going to start to see more of from gambling companies, particularly with investor pressure to understand how they protect players and what, uh, what the sort of facts in their customer base are. You know, the investment industry generally is is discovering itself what their own ESG rules are going to be. So there's discovery on both sides. One thing I'd want to wrap up with, really, is to get all of you to think forward a little bit. So, I mean, it's it's, it's often said that uh, the odds are always stacked in favour of the house and, you know, the bookmakers always win. But I'm curious to get from, from each of your sort of slightly differing perspective on this question. This is clearly a, a time of significant change across the sector because of the sort of digital changes, the regulatory changes that we've talked about. Just looking forward over the next kind of five years or so, where do you think the big changes will be seen in this industry, Alex? It's a good question. Uh, I think everyone's got their eyes on the US, the size of the opportunity there. The reason the European operators have have, uh, had initial success in the US is because of the technology they bring to the market. Um, Having had decades of experience in UK or European regulated markets. I think if the US market opens up as some people hope it might, we'll see more consolidation. The bigger will get bigger. Alice, what about you? What really struck me actually this week was some of the technology that the operators are coming up with in order to present a better face to the industry. So safer gambling measures. There was um, scientific gaming had facial recognition machines, which would tell, you know, stop uh, an addicted gambler potentially even using a machine in a casino. So there's some really interesting technology if the industry can show that it's prepared to use it. Adopt it and then talk about it, well, I presume. Exactly. Yeah. 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 How about you, Bruce? I, I think there's some convergence of industries here. I think media, I think that you'll, you've seen media companies like Fox wanting to get into, as I said earlier, wanting to get into uh, and gambling themselves. I think you've got companies like Perform that have a lot of media rights that Vista Partners acquired um, last year. And you'll see them trying to aggregate that big data into the front end of some of these gambling operators. And the people who do that the best, and particularly the US companies, the big US media companies, will eventually converge into, I think, this space uh, to create some rather big monoliths if if the US opens up to the extent it might. David, how do you see it? Yeah, I think I, I agree with everything the other, the other three have said. Um, I'm sure that there will be more and more consolidation. And um, like law firms, you're going to end up with uh, a few global big players, companies, um, and no doubt still some niche operators, but probably not much in between. Um, I think the 
the regulatory trend, I don't really see the, that pendulum swinging back violently over the next few years. And I think the states, after a few years, um, I, and I think it will be a success, the, the US gambling market, but I think regulation will increase over there inevitably at some point. I think the niche I think the niche players will be tech companies. I think there'll be software software development that helps the operators, helps the B2B providers provide a much better, more efficient, more uh, seamless service, retaining customers, retain and evolving games, evolving the product itself, whether it's from a regulatory perspective or or otherwise. Um so um they would be the niche players and then you'll have these huge huge as akin to the internet with Google and Facebook and those types of operators in the gambling space. I can see the convergence of media gaming um, becoming one or two big leaders in that regard. So appropriately enough, in view of the subject matter, we finished with a tip there to look at the tech companies in relation to this area. So with that, I want to say thank you very much indeed to my guest today. That's uh, Alex Brennan from Hudson Sandler, Bruce Garrow from Investec, David Zeffman from CMS and Alice Hancock from the FT. You can find more details about this podcast via our website and by following us on Twitter at Hudson Sandler. For now, thank you very much. To find out more about Hudson Sandler, our team, our culture and our thinking, visit our website, hudsonsandler.com.